The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Leone Jose Bicchieri. He is the founder and executive director of Working Family Solidarity, which strives to attain economic security for workers of all backgrounds by educating workers on employee rights, decreasing racial tension, and building racial alliances. Working Family Solidarity is based in Chicago, Illinois, but the work is nationwide. And Mr. Bicchieri has worked for 30 years organizing workers and working families of all backgrounds for economic and racial justice, including farm workers in the Northwest, poultry processing workers and chicken farmers in the Southeast, meatpacking workers in the Midwest and Plains states, janitors in Midwestern cities, and temp staffing workers in the greater Chicago area. He was national staff with the Immigrant Worker Freedom Ride and also worked as a long-term volunteer in Nicaragua during the Contra War. Mr. Bicchieri was recently executive director of the Chicago Workers Collaborative, a Chicago-based worker center where he founded the Bringing Down Barriers program to unite African-American and Latino temp staffing workers to win more rights at work. Mr. Bicchieri was also a founding board member of Raise the Floor, the allegiance of eight worker centers in Illinois. Welcome, Mr. Bicchieri. It's an honor to have you with me today. It's great to be here. You know, I am very much concerned about our awareness of how food gets to our plate. I want to know how the animals are treated. I want to know how the workers are treated. And as a consumer educator about our food system, I want people to be able to vote with their dollars for a just food system. And that's where you come in. You've been working in this area for decades, and I want to paint a picture for our listeners about what it's like to be a worker in some of the meatpacking industries, some of the food service areas. I want you to help us understand what it's like to be a worker so we can be more appreciative and be more active citizens in terms of improving the food system. So why don't you first tell me how you got started in this work? Well, my father came to this country from Italy. My mother came from Mexico. And my mother was a community activist for a long time. And she later went back to law school and graduated when I was finishing high school. And that had a big influence on me. My parents divorced when I was a little guy. And my stepfather was an activist in the civil rights movement as well. This was in the Midwest. And so that had a lot to do with why I became really involved in justice issues, why I became very focused on racial unity among working people, because I began to see at a young age how we were kept apart, black people, apart from Latino, apart from Asian, apart from whites. And we tended to think that our own racial group was sort of where we should stay as opposed to developing solidarity between people based on our economic standing. So why couldn't poor whites start to 
come together with poor Latino people, poor African Americans, poor Asians, poor indigenous people, because we're the majority in this country, if you look at economics, and start to fight for our rights and jobs and housing and other things. So I got my start at a kind of early age. I volunteered for a lot of things in college and was active in the community. I spent a couple of years, as you had mentioned, trying to fight the funding of the Contra War back in the late 80s in Nicaragua, trying to prevent another Vietnam in Central America. And when I came back, I went into the farm worker movement and then into some of the other things you mentioned, the poultry processing and so on. And one of the things that always interested me when I started to become interested as a teenager and in my early 20s in fighting for justice was I wanted to fight for racial justice, but then, as I mentioned, I started to see that so much of it was tied up with economics, because if you and your family have enough to have a place to live, decent income, buy your food, have a few basic stable things, then even if some folks in the neighborhood or the town don't like you because of your skin color or race, you at least have some semblance of stability and can begin to then deal with these other problems of racial discrimination and so on. And so I became really fascinated, and I am to this day, 32 years later, I've been doing this now for 32 years full-time in various places in the country and now for about 13 years in Chicago. And I became fascinated with how do we unite across racial boundaries as working people for the good of all of us. And I ended up doing many years in food processing from people who picked the vegetables to the animals and so on. And one Honduran friend of mine who came from Honduras, he was a teacher there a long time, and he went to a meatpacking plant in one of the plain states. And when I talked to him a while later and said, hey, how's it going over there? What happened? And he said, well, when I go into the plant, it's a kill plant of hogs, pork processing plant. He said, I leave my humanity at the gate. And I go in for my 8, 10, 12-hour shift, and then when I come out, I try to regain my humanity for a while to go back home with my family. And what he was talking about was, especially if you're at a kill plant, the horrors of the methods of killing of animals, which are dangerous for the workers involved, which is inhumane for a lot of the animals, uh, and which is pushed at very high speeds. And we can talk more about that, but... Those were some of the things that I began to see across the country that instead of seeing it as a division, I began to see that as a possible point of unity, that we're all, as workers, forced to endure horrible conditions that are also horrible for the animals if you're at a kill plant. And that's what fascinated me. And now at Working Family Solidarity, although we do not focus only on food processing in the greater Chicago area, many of our low-wage members work at food processing and further processing plants in the greater Chicago area. Mm. What a powerful story, and what a brilliant strategy to stop the divisiveness and to help us be more cooperative rather than competitive. And I often wonder why workers don't really recognize their power, and maybe it's because union membership has been declining over the years. I think propaganda has been very effective in getting people to believe that it's better to be divided and to pit one another against each other. So I think your strategies are really important. 
I remember hearing about the line speed, and USDA has been trying to increase line speed for poultry for quite some time. But on July 23rd of this year, a recent report came out. It said USDA has the regulatory authority to slow down or stop a production line in poultry processing plants if it's deemed unsafe. But increased line speeds of up to 175 birds per minute have been around for 25 years. I don't know how we can have a fully eviscerated bird. I don't know how people can escape carpal tunnel injuries. Tell me about what has happened with poultry line speeds. Why have they been creeping up? Sadly, like many other industries in this country and in most countries on earth, what happens in food production is driven by finances, not by those of us who sell our labor in that scheme, but by folks who want to make money. A lot of food processes are owned by private equity firms that come in and run them for a few years, and then whatever happens to them after that, they move on, or giant international corporations, Smithfield, Tyson. Tyson's the biggest producer of protein in the world. Smithfield's the biggest red meat processor. These are giants. Right? They have tentacles all over the world and in other countries as well. And so they want to make a profit. So everything starts at the top. None of it starts at the bottom. None of it starts at a 500-worker plant in the Midwest or in the Southeast and where management comes together with workers of various backgrounds and says, what would work here? Would 50 or 60 birds be a good thing? That's pretty difficult, but could we do that safely? Hey, let's see. And you know what? Guess what? The owners still make money. But no, the owners and the investors and so on, they don't want to make some money. They want to make tremendous amounts of money. So we're not going to push the birds through at 60 a minute. We're going to do it at 120 and the other things that you're talking about. Carpal tunnel is a huge problem, but there's very vague definitions of remedies for carpal tunnel. Not that some people haven't won some great lawsuits and amazing heroes have fought back all over the country to have justice for their carpal tunnel problems. But it's often vague in OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and the federal laws, it's very vague. So you say, hey, my arm really, really hurts. And the doctor says, hey, your arm really, really hurts. Well, and then you say, oh, by the way, I make this tiny little motion 14,000 times a day, mm-hmm. right, with my left hand, because they won't let me do it with my right hand. This is a true story. I was talking with people years ago in the southeast at a poultry processing plant, and one of the women was saying, I have this incredible pain in my elbow. I'm not sure the doctor and the workers' comp and OSHA, I don't know if it's going to all work out with carpal tunnel. It's not easy to kind of win that legal thing because they say, well, you have arthritis. Well, at home, you have a baby. You're picking them up. That caused it. But this woman told me, because I said, well, gosh, can you use the other hand or move to another part of the line where you do a slightly different motion, also 14,000 times a day, but maybe it's a little different. And she said, the manager and the line supervisor will not let us. We've talked to them and said, can we just shift where we work in the same part of the line every few days? And that would probably help because we're doing a slightly different motion. But the administrators, the management, the line supervisors in 99% of those occasions will literally say no. And the reason is not because it wouldn't work. The reason is because then workers would start to feel like they actually have a voice and can actually make change. 
And so you cannot even do that. We're not even talking about slowing the line speed, just shifting where they work. The vast majority of plants will not do it because they don't want workers to get in their head that they could have any influence on what happens in a plant. Just that story alone gives you an idea of the problem we're dealing with. It gives me chills. It's so unjust, and the thought of workers just being so downtrodden, I don't want to eat food that comes from that kind of system. And I want to know what we as eaters can do. Do you think boycotts are effective? Like once we find out that a Tyson plant or a Smithfield plant is not treating workers fairly, is a boycott the way to go? Is there any movement to just have all of the workers one day just walk out of the factory? Are there that many places that have such a clampdown on these workers that they can't do that? My opinion, after working in a number of states over a bunch of years and working on boycotts, I was, I've been a boycott coordinator in the farm worker movement. For the public, we always joke that there is no such thing as the general public because you can always break folks down into all kinds of categories. But right. for folks, let's say, who aren't real familiar with some of this stuff but I want to get interested because others probably already know the answer, but for those who want to say, man, I want to start making a difference here in the food processing, both for the animals and for the people and so on, and for the community, so there's not environmental problems from the plant, I always urge folks to look into local situations, because if you, and I know because I've done a lot of trial and error in boycotts, if you just say, everything in this particular industry, let's say in this case, food processing, you know, everything's so messed up, we're just going to do a boycott of every major brand of meat, let's say. I would not propose that approach, partly because I think it should be done together with the workers that are involved. Mm -hmm. Because if you declare a consumer boycott, the plant goes back to the workers and will say, hey, folks aren't buying our meat, I'm going to lay half of you off. Right. And now you have 250 really poor families that have no other source of income. And if they're undocumented, any of them, they don't get unemployment and they don't get anything. So I think it's really important that more people get involved in this fight. Don't get me wrong at all. I kind of fight for a living. But what I think you want to do is wherever you live, you're going to know your area better than I do, unless it's the, the greater Chicago area. Look into those things. If there's a food processing plant, right, if there's other stuff going on, a lot of farm workers, ask around. Sometimes there are churches who don't advertise, but they'll have a social justice committee. And some of the members go there. Some of the members of the meatpacking plant, right, some of the workers might go there. And you can start to get to know them so it can be a coordinated effort. So I'm not saying don't boycott at all, but we want it to be effective and we want to make sure that workers are kind of in the lead, like saying, hey, we've tried to walk off the job. We've tried this. We've talked with management. And there has been such a horrible response that we're actually ready now to ask people not to buy these particular products from this particular producer until they meet these certain demands. So I think that it's sort of the unity of those workers and supporters that, in my experience, is then really effective. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. And just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Leone Jose Bicchieri, founder and executive director of Working Family Solidarity, which strives to attain economic security for workers of all backgrounds by educating workers on employee rights, decreasing racial tension, and building racial alliances. 
I have to ask about local meat processing plants because I know that there have been several groups that have looked at where we're seeing COVID cases really blow up. And of course, you would expect to see them in places where there is a lot of density of population, where it's hard to separate. But then you start seeing these big areas of outbreaks in rural communities, and you realize, oh, that's where the meat processing plants are. And so with regard to worker safety, we have learned a lot with regard to, oh, we've got these essential workers, they're processing our meat, and yet we're not protecting their health. What has happened on the COVID-19 front? Are meat processing facilities taking steps to protect their workers better? The answer is yes, but number one, not enough of them are doing it. Number two, the measures are often not enough. And number three, it has only happened in places where there has been a combined worker and supporter pressure. So just back to what we were talking about, maybe workers aren't going to work there. Even though they're desperate, they really think they'll get so sick that now they don't care if they have little money for rent. They don't want to get sick, and they don't want their kids and their grandparents to get sick. So it has happened in Milan, Missouri, in northern Missouri, in a project that that I actually helped found 13 years ago. There's some great people working up there. And the Smithfield plant, through a sustained effort, they had a lot of folks, possibly up to half of the several hundred workers there, that got positive tests for COVID-19. And I'll leave out the details, but through a whole bunch of weeks of pressure and push from all kinds of great folks, the workers came together, and especially with the Rural Community Workers Alliance, which is a great project up there. And then again, please look into such projects in your area, right, to find out because there's great local things going on. They often just don't get much press all over the country. But they came together fought hard and were able to institute a number of really important health and safety measures that maybe were not great, but were pretty good in preventing further outbreak of COVID-19. Here in Chicago, we supported folks at a retail bakery, so it wasn't animal processing, but a retail bakery that helps a lot of the groceries throughout a large part of Chicago to get bread and donuts and all kinds of things. 70 immigrant workers, almost all women, mainly from Mexico, a number of undocumented, they pushed back, were met with stiff resistance, told that I'll be fired, told that, you know, don't mess with us. You're so easily replaceable. One of our members happened to work there, so we got involved. We got a whole lot of people involved. We reached out to, it happened in a village on the southwest side of Chicago, so to the mayor of that particular village, the health sanitation people. We got lawyers for workers' comp, personal injury, environmental law, We got all kinds of things going, and one of the big pressures there, Melinda, because you were asking about the what supporters can do. In this case, as we let folks know what was going on, a bunch of people in the Latino community took it upon themselves. We didn't even ask them to do it, and they started calling their neighborhood stores saying, hey, if you have any products from this bakery, we're not buying any of them ever again, and we might not even go to your store that much because they're possibly hurting and even maybe killing people because they're having an outbreak and they're not stopping to clean the plant and so on. Long story short, with a lot of pressure over a few weeks, the company finally went back on what they promised they would never do. They shut the plant for two weeks. They paid all the workers their normal wage for two weeks, helped the workers go get tested, and did a deep cleaning of the plant. So 
those are two success stories. But unfortunately, there are also a lot of stories of people that start to fight back. A few people get fired. They're really scared that they can't pay rent and they might be out on the street and they go back to work even though it's unsafe. Mm. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the undocumented situation because that also works to erode worker empowerment. So I saw one statistic that said about 38% of workers in meat processing were undocumented. I don't know if that's right or not. It was just a statistic that I saw in the news. You would probably know better. But I wonder if you could speak to the undocumented position. You know, there's so much animosity toward migrant workers, and yet people want to eat. I don't understand why we don't welcome people who help put food on our plates rather than trying to harm them, incarcerate them, lock them up at the border. What are we doing here? Yeah, and so much of that, first of all, it's a great question, and so much of that has to do not with what would be a just response to human beings who are willing to sell their labor in really difficult types of work, but it often comes around to politics and opportunists at national levels, state levels, local levels, who want to get elected and play on people's fears. And instead of doing what they in their heart know is right, just treat people like humans, they'll say, well, the enemy is not these really rich, wealthy companies trying to destroy our community, pollute the water, slaughter all these animals in horrible ways, pay low wages, have dangerous conditions, especially with COVID-19. But instead of speaking the truth that we need to get our economy to be much more functional for the human beings and the animals in it and our environment. And instead of saying, hey, that's not easy, let's figure out together how to do this better, it becomes, you know what, everything would be okay if those folks stopped crossing the border. And of course, we have so many examples historically, right? And it works, unfortunately, very well to scapegoat a certain community. So that unfortunately happens. On a broader scale, when NAFTA was passed, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and I'll, and I'll make this really short, a lot of those free, free trade agreements, like the one with Mexico, were put in place, you could either say on purpose to destroy the Mexican economy or further erode it, or you could minimally say really smart people designed this and they're smart enough to know that these policies were extremely likely to hurt the economy in Mexico even more, going back now a couple decades, and send thereby even more really desperate people north. And so it moved capital south, and it moved workers north. And when you have an extra few million desperate workers in this country, it's not just about we want to hurt those workers. It now becomes every worker, foreign-born or U.S.-born, is now in a glut where if I don't do this really difficult job, say here in Chicago, we get this all the time, there's three or four people waiting to do it. Mm. And so I better accept this illegal less-than-minimum-wage job for God knows how much, get paid cash in the hand, and there's no record that I ever did it, and I'll never get Social Security. And so... The undocumented issue, which I'm not going to go into too much more today, but I urge people to really think about it. It's much more than these folks are coming in to invade our country. It's much more of a planned use so that more workers are pitted against each other. So in Chicago, we have a lot of African-Americans who are very frustrated with undocumented workers who work in construction, who work in food processing, who work in whatever, because in general, 
they will not get unemployment and not get all these other things, undocumented folks. So they're very desperate and they're going to take certain work and they'll even take it at lower wages. So in this way, if someone says, I am mad at those undocumented workers because I am a U.S. born worker, don't be mad at them. They're your brothers and sisters. Someone is playing the game on you. So I'm me, Leone, I'm doing this interview. I was born in the United States. But when there's all these other workers from wherever they are competing, that hurts me. And if I think that it's not a bigger plan to do that, that's the mistake. It's not a few folks coming from Mexico trying to hurt us. It's more like, and I have relatives in Mexico, and I've been to Mexico a lot, so I guarantee you no one comes north. Well, not no one. Maybe one out of every 10,000 people comes north because they think it's interesting. All the rest want to be home with their grandma, with their kids, with their cousins, where they grew up. No one wants to go two, 3,000 miles away. They're scared. They don't like it, but there's nothing they can do to survive, so they come north. So it's a much bigger problem than, you know, these folks need to get their immigration documents fixed. There's no path to citizenship or residency right now. So some friends of mine say, well, why don't they just go pay a lawyer and get their documents? There is no way to do that. There is no program. You can live in the States for 30 years, and I know people have done this, and not be documented. And who does that benefit? And the answer is everyone but working people, so the most wealthy folks who are often those owners of food processing. And if we come together and can see beyond these fear tactics and scapegoating, I always tell people, I want people to do things because it's altruistic, but I also think there's nothing wrong in something very powerful in self-interest, good old self-interest, nothing like it. If you're born in the United States, don't fight for all workers, including undocumented workers' rights, because it helps others, do it because it helps you. It literally, raising the federal minimum wage, slowing down the line speed for chickens and pork and all that, all these other things will help you. Do it for you. That is such an important message. I'm so glad you brought up the case of, you know, why are people coming here? Who would want to leave their country and their home and their family? So asking why people are coming over the border, asking why conditions are so bad, I think is a really good place to start. So, Mr. Abikieri, I want to thank you so much. I want to make sure that people know about your work, know about your organization. I will provide a link to many supporting documents to all of the topics we've been talking about. Unfortunately, we have to close. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Leone Jose Bicchieri. He is the founder and executive director of Working Family Solidarity. I'll provide a link to your organization. Are there any other places you would like people to go to learn more? Well, again, I'm a big local guy, so I would urge you to look in your city, county, state, you know, look for different social justice, could be a union, a religious group, a community group. Ask around, right, because that way you learn, and and maybe a certain group is known for great integrity, right, and then you want to become involved. So look around locally, and then, you know, nationally, a lot of the farm worker unions check into the ones most active in your area, Working Family Solidarity, if you're in the Chicago area, or if you reach out to us via our website, I can try to help you find folks in your area. The USDA, you can push your Congress people 
to press to change laws to slow the line speeds. So a lot of work can be done around federal minimum wage going up and health and safety at plants going up and also the safety of animals and how all of that is done. Contact different animal rights groups. They'll have a lot of strategies. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your work and for spending time with me today. Absolutely. I was so glad to do it.